1: Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out.
2: This is Psychoanalysis. This is Psychoanalysis, a horror therapy podcast analyzing the horror genre through the lens of mental health. I'm Jen Adams. I'm Laura Unterstall.
0: And I'm Mike Snoonian.
2: And we are doing something a little different today. And I have I this is how we do it in my head for some reason. So <laughs> just hear that in your background. Um, it's the fifth Thursday of the month. And so instead of choosing a new movie to talk about, we decided to do a listener feedback episode. Hooray! <laughs> and it is not lost on me that it is concluding our month on narcissism. <laughs>
0: so- <laughs> our listeners stepped
2: Oh. They really did, man. I, oh, man, yeah. Also, I was very nervous that we weren't going to get any questions. And I was like, can we make some up if we don't? But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got a ton. We really did. Yeah. I was, and uh, really good ones and really kind things too. And, and I also want to say like, we're savings. Like, we're not going to be able to answer every question. We're going to try to answer every question, at least one question from every person who wrote in. Mm-hmm. But this is going to be something that we're going to keep doing down the road for, I mean, I imagine if there's ever another fifth Thursday, we would do this. No. And we're going to incorporate, I think we're talking about doing it monthly on Patreon. So if we do not yeah. get your question today, we will answer. Answer it at some point.
0: Yeah. What we definitely envision for the Patreon is like once a month, we do a Patreon exclusive QA. And we would love to have it like focus on that month's topic. Mm -hmm. Like if you have more questions on narcissism or anxiety or whatever we happen to be covering that month, but obviously you can ask us like whatever. Like if you're honestly, if you become a patron, you can demand that we dance, (laughs) whatever. I mean, I think you have promised
2: tubby time. So,
0: <laughs> yeah, you did.
2: I, I
0: told my coworkers at school if I get enough answers to a survey I sent out, um, I would do the truffle shuffle from the Goonies. Nice. <laughs> so,
2: yeah, and I like answering kind of the silly ones too. I think they're fun. So, yeah, just so you know, if you sent us a question and we do not answer it today, we are saving them in the questions vault. Um, that's the vault. The hinge. vault opening. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. I got it. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> what's coming like, out. It's like, <laughs> like a bunch of bats flying out. Yeah. Right. And the first mm-hmm.
2: question is, how do we get so good at Foley work? So, you know. <laughs> it is a good, it's a good question. <laughs> it is a good question. And I don't have a good answer. Um, so let's get to our questions questions we are also if we got a couple of questions that um were kind of very similar so we're trying we kind of condensed and we didn't we're not going to read everything you said although again thank you so much for reaching out some really really kind words that we got that really you know helped me feel really good about myself which was nice yeah
0: which if i should point out here if you want to cut and paste those kind words into an iTunes review, (laughs) along with five stars, that does go huge. I know our friends at Scarred for Life mentioned this on Twitter this week, how much, I can't stress it enough, it seems like a silly thing, but like when we get reviews, five-star reviews, and a few sentences after it, it helps people find us. Yeah. So if you love what we do and you want more people to hear about us. Like if you wrote in and said something nice, just copy and paste it, throw it in an iTunes review, throw those five stars there. And then just make sure that you're um, subscribing to us every as well.
2: Yeah. And I posted that thread because Terry did post that with a lot of Mm -hmm. tips about how you can help out pods for free too. And a lot of it is just really simple stuff. Yeah. As much as like the reviews really make us feel good. And I like them for that reason it does. Like Mm -hmm. the other reason is that it really helps the pod. Like just get in front of yep. more ears. So yeah. that's how them algorithms work.
1: Algorithm- and I love an yeah. algorithm.
2: <laughs> I have a love-hate relationship with algorithms, especially. Oh, I don't actually Garten, like us.
1: Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay.
2: <laughs> okay, so question number one. A few people asked us about our personal comfort horror films, including Andrew and Stacy. And Andrew also added that um, I'm quoting, according to one study, zombie movies have helped a lot of horror fans cope with the pandemic. Um, what do we think of that? And what are the go-to comfort horror films we watch over and over?
1: Well, I will personally say that zombie films do not help me through this pandemic. They have not helped me and they will not help me. I've basically been avoiding any, any horror films that are virus or what have you related. Anything that even has that flavor is a big no-no for me right, right now. But but in the spirit of this podcast, I can totally see how that might be a thing is, you know, sort of facing your fears in a safe way and zombies being the preferred metaphor for the century um, and last, honestly, when it comes to this kind of thing. So mm-hmm. uh, I can see that for me. I mean, the the two biggest ones for me that are comfort horror films are the OG Nightmare on Elm Street and Dream Warriors uh, I will watch those any time of day. Just generally, I could pretty much put on any Nightmare on Elm Street film and find it comforting, but those are the, the, my two favorites. And I, at once upon a time, I would have said Silence of the Lambs because I have seen it roughly 8,000 <laughs> times. But, the, you know, having become a little bit more aware of the criticisms around it from the trans community, um, which are extremely valid, I kind of find it hard to watch now, and, mm-hmm. and it's a little painful to watch, so that is no longer on the list for me.
2: Yeah. And the Horror Queers just did a great episode on the Silence of the Lambs um, with Reyna Cervantes, I think, too. Oh, cool. I have to um, check that out. It is good. Yeah. And I think that's one. Like, I have a couple where I once I have some kind of anxiety attached to the film, it no longer is a comfort film for me because mm-hmm. it kicks that anxiety up. Um, yep. I don't dig zombie movies. That's just not really my thing. There are a couple that I really love, like um Twenty Eight Days Later, um, mostly because of Killian Murphy. But that's a whole other <laughs> conversation. Um, no. so that has not been a genre that I've really turned to, but I could see it working. Like I could see identifying with the people that are stuck in the mall and kind of having that cathartic like feeling of feeling trapped and kind of being able to express that through that. Mm-hmm. It's not particularly something that I'm drawn to. But my comfort horror movies, um, Sunshine, has, is really becoming a big one for me. Especially, I've said that I always watch it on tax day. And I did, even though it was faux tax day, because we've got more tax season coming. But um, I also love Cabin in the Woods, Friday the 13th, the Fright Night Remake. Um, I love the original, but the for some reason the second one just kind of has hits the sweet spot where I don't necessarily have to pay attention, but I like having it on in the background and then Urban Legend and really just any 90 slashers. I just love, love, love. So
0: Yeah. There's actually a really good article. It's in Silence Daily. They interview John Johnson, a which is a made-up name, <laughs> which is the professor emeritus of psychology at Penn State. And he is a professor of made up names, but he talks about how like post-apocalyptic fiction, whether it's movies, can kind of help people get through the like pandemic times or something like this. I think part of what he talks about the studies and one was done at the University of Chicago, what they show is it helps to watch them before a pandemic Mm. hits if they don't necessarily help when you're in the middle of one Mm. um like to your point (laughs) Laura, where you're like yeah i'm avoiding like i'm not watching outbreak right now fuck no which although yeah Yeah. i
1: I did say like a lot of those movies were like uh, you know netflix released some kind of article and it was like like um a lot of zombie movies and that one movie um that is like very realistic depiction of a pandemic that i'm blanking on the name of um they were like some of the most streamed movies right mm-hmm. around this time last yeah. year so i do think it's interesting that people are contagion. going to these things uh yes yeah. yes yeah. contagion so i don't really you know i think i think it's clearly in the zeitgeist but for me personally mm-hmm. yeah no no, thank you it's not helping yeah <laughs> right.
0: No, I will say that like the movie I'm really looking forward to right now. Like I just watched it and I'm not a a Zack Snyder fan typically, um, although I did like his Justice League more than I expected, (laughs) um, surprisingly. And I think it's hard to separate the artist from the fandom. And I think in part because he encourages that fandom a lot. But I was surprised with how much I enjoyed his... Four-hour Justice League movie. I will never watch it. Not,
1: not and, you could I, not pay I won't me. Blame you. you could not pay me to watch it. <laughs> like,
0: what would the patron level be?
1: You'd like, have to pay me at least five hundred dollars. Mm.
0: Patron level five hundred dollars. Yep. Laura will.
1: Well, I'll watch. I will live stream
2: watching the Justice League imported. Snyder cut.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Um, if you would
2: pay another five hundred, I'll join you. <laughs> well, just
0: because he's like his Superman interpret. He's so wrong on Superman. Mm. Uh, he just just fundamentally misunderstands that character, and then his Batman is what like a twelve year old would think is cool <laughs> about Batman. Um, every little piece but, that
1: I've sniffed out, I'm like, no, no, yeah. Yeah. no.
0: But. <laughs> army of the dead looks fantastic
1: i have heard that i mean somebody was telling me about it and it sounds fun i mean if if you're gonna yeah. force me to watch a zombie movie right now it had better be combined mm-hmm. with a heist movie or i'm not interested yeah. Mm-hmm. but <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. But they, you know put dave batista in in just about anything and i'm pretty excited mm-hmm. to watch so um uh, for my personal like comfort horror movies like american werewolf in london is probably one of my all time favorite comfort movies. I adore that movie so much. I just love I've said this before, half joking, like I think half the reason I am married to a British woman is like n- nurse in that movie <laughs>
1: um,
0: with the British accent, you know, I'm like that's you know, not to get too deep, mm-hmm. but if you want to have every now and then we throw on some Van Morrison, <laughs> she wears a nurse's outfit and <laughs>
1: Oh boy! Do you turn into so we if, if that's—I don't know if that's deep, so much as something you should consult with your wife before telling everyone.
0: Yeah. So she's, she's into it. She's into it.
2: Talking about it on a podcast is part of the fun, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's part of the. Kink. I would
0: say yes. Podcasting after dark. Books. Um, so I would also say that, like. One of my traditions is the first snowfall every year, I watch John Carpenter's The Thing.
1: Oh, yeah, that's the one for me, too. How could I forget to include that?
0: Absolutely love that. For newer movies, like The Battery um, by Jeremy Gardner is one of mine. The original Fright Night is a movie that I will always watch. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, Wes Craven Scream is also mm-hmm. a comfort mm-hmm. horror movie for me. That's like a warm... Blanket and really like when the pandemic first hit, I didn't watch any horror outside of what I had to watch for the show for a couple months. And the first batch of horror movies that we started to rewatch were the late 90s, which I don't think the late 90s slashers quite measure up to the 80s slashers, but in terms of just being like fun enjoyable pieces of fluffy entertainment like we were doing i still know what you did last summer in urban legend and valentine because they're really well made and they're really well urban legend and valentine are both really well made and they're really fun movies to watch um that don't require like a lot of brain power Mm -hmm. but they're exceptionally done so i would say like for comfort horror like that and again the original fright night yeah um is right in my wheelhouse Oh, in Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, in The Wolf Man, and The Invisible Man. Like, those are the universal four universal horrors. Move. Yeah.
2: I've not seen any universal monster movies. I need to. Well, then
0: you are in for a treat when you eventually
2: get to them. (laughs) Well, I will say one of the things like I I, this would be kind of a slightly different type of comfort horror movie, but I have been watching Picnic and Hanging Rock, especially the first 30 Mm -hmm. minutes. Like there's and Suspiria, the new one. There's like a real ASMR quality for me. Yeah. Um, and The I scene pro- where she gets contorted and breaks all her bones. <laughs> yes, definitely that one. No, just something <laughs> about, like, the way um, it's so earthy and Picnic at Hanging Rock, yeah. it's just, like, their accents. I don't know. Something about it, like, is very, like, physically soothing for me. And I also will put unfriended in there too. I think it's because of like the Mm. clicking of the keyboard or something. It's just kind of a Mm. magnetic thing and it makes me zone in, but it's not my own computer screen that I have to control. So Mm -hmm. those are like I I put those more as in like ASMR watches for me. But like sometimes I'll just throw on a picnic and hanging rock when I'm done editing an episode and I need to just kind of decompress a little bit and it's very like it's very nice.
1: Ah, cool. So uh, another theme that came up a few times was using horror films to treat clients in a mental health setting. So I'm really going to be looking at you, Mike, um, for Mm -hmm. a lot of this. Andrew wrote, I know Mike works with elementary students, so he probably wouldn't do this with them. But has he ever suggested watching horror movies to help treat a client? I'm just starting my career as a school counselor. Oh, yeah. So it's been something on my mind lately. Yeah, we've got a few uh, counselors, aspiring counselors and our listeners, so that's Aww, awesome. That's so cool. Yeah, I do very much believe that horror can heal. So this is... Uh, Andrew talking again, I feel like I lost my interior voice there for a moment, and I'm like, am I saying this? No, 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 it was my fault. No, no, it's my my own brain did that. Um, So he says, I do very much believe that horror can heal, but I'm curious how to put that in practice. I wouldn't do it for everyone, obviously. And Aaron wrote, as someone about to start at my advanced age, an MS program in counseling psychology, what would you say about the uses of horror films as therapy, a form of art therapy perhaps?
0: Yeah, I'm gonna tackle this one. I think in a lot more detail because there's a question later on that got into some of the specifics of using horror. So I'm gonna touch on this like really briefly. So I work mostly with middle school students. Like it's a K through eight, but I like I stick work mostly with like fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders, especially especially the last three. It's being a school counselor is a little different from being a counselor counselor. Like my job at school. Is kind of like to put it in like used car salesman terms, like what's it going to take to get you back into math class today? (laughs) You know, you know what I mean? Like, it's really about handling like day to day anxieties and a lot of peer intervention and a lot of like test taking anxiety. So, it's really about working with students on like brief interventions they can do for low levels of anxiety or low levels of like peer conflict and whatnot, and trying to come up with like coping skills so they can like interact in a classroom setting. So, we don't really use like in terms of creative interventions, like we I use mandalas a lot, which is like giving someone the space to kind of like briefly like color and like kind of refocus their attention and allow like their internal temperature to really kind of cool itself down a little bit it's interesting at school because a lot of the kids i work with don't really watch horror movies Hmm. and they don't what warmed my heart the other day was watching a group of sixth graders one of them busted out his laptop at lunch and he had it on his table and he was his friends because they're all at different tables right now they would kind of like look over and he was watching Kong versus Godzilla, which was really, really cool. But for the most part, a lot of them, they're way more into anime Mm. um, and they're way more into the Marvel movies. So if I were to like do anything, I would probably like Naruto right now. I have a a (laughs) specific kid I work with who really identifies with Naruto, uh, which is an anime show uh, that's streaming on Netflix. And when you look at the, students background, you can see what is appealing about the character of Naruto. So I kind of do that. I do have on the back of my door like a poster of the evil dead, the original one, because my door is usually open. So I feel like I'm getting one over at that point. So I don't think I really answered your question, but I would say like I will kind of like dive a lot more into it later on. And I just find like school counseling is way, way different than mental health counseling. They're almost like Two completely different jobs. The other thing you'll find as a school counselor is you're a lot more of a community advocate. So a huge chunk of the work I do, honestly, is like making sure that like kids that are food insecure or clothing insecure or supply insecure that we're getting those families the assistance they mm-hmm. need because it's really hard to come into school and focus on learning if you're starving. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I I was just gonna comment that, you know. In Andrew's case, to me, like using, if you're going to use horror films in a therapeutic setting, that's almost, it depends on the, in my opinion, who you're talking to, why you're doing, doing this form of therapy. If you are using it to help people get past certain fears, kind of like we discussed in our very, very early anxiety episodes, to me, that would become a form of exposure therapy or some kind of, which is usually related to trauma or PTSD. And I, in my opinion, that should only be implemented by a therapist who is, trained in that modality so I think it's yeah. like especially if you're a new practitioner or something that would be something I would be very very ca- careful or cautious with it's one mm-hmm. thing if somebody arrives at your door as a, as a counselor and they are interested in horror and that's kind of a tool you could use yeah. together but I and I do like the idea of integrating it into an art therapy context and you can tell me if I'm wrong on this Mike but to me that would be more about allowing people to make horror films or write Scripts or things of that nature, little horror stories, versus just sitting and watching them. Um, I know I personally have used writing horror and horror filmmaking as my own kind of art therapy. I think probably people think if if you looked at all the screenplays and little that are very short, like sitting on my. On my personal desktop, you'd probably think I was a very disturbed individual, but I, uh, mm-hmm. I, I even if I haven't finished them, I sometimes use things that haunt me the most, or that I find the most disgusting, or or like just awful, and I and I write them down in the form mm-hmm. of screen little scripts and screenplays, and yeah. so in the past short stories because that's just how I process those things, mm-hmm. um, and to me that's kind of my own little style of art therapy. So I don't know what you think about that.
0: I think that's awesome. And I think that would definitely work with creative types. And I know that like, so I use art therapy, but I'm not an art therapist. And I want to make the distinction like art therapists, like they, there are certified art therapists that go through advanced training in terms of ways to incorporate um, art into their practice like different forms of art and creativity mm-hmm. in there um, and it's a more advanced like you said it's a more advanced level there's like very specific training yeah. although any therapist can use creative and artistic interventions it just I would just if you are like I would just caution don't call yourself an art therapist or say you use art in therapy yeah. I think what you're doing in that form of therapy is wonderful if that is your if that's a technique that works, I would strongly encourage it for others that are more, and we'll get more into it. Like how I use some like cinema therapy and music therapy. Um, I do have clients that are like very artistically inclined and we do incorporate some cinema and music and art techniques into their therapy. And I actually kind of want to go and get more education and more training on it because to me, it can be really effective um, with kids using art and play therapy. Like I i have gotten like level two certification for like play therapy and children. Mm. I just need to get basically a, a number of like certified hours along with an advisor in order to get that next level of certification. But it's something that I think, especially if it's someone, if you're someone that struggles to articulate Emotions with children often do it can be really effective Mm -hmm. to use that. So,
2: well, I have used horror in my therapy, my own personal therapy a lot. And like, Mm -hmm. I have joked with my therapist about how many horror movies I've spoiled for her because (laughs) Mm -hmm. I just like that's, I think. Personally, I use horror to kind of understand how I'm seeing the world, and writing about horror has been a big, Mm -hmm. big part of my therapy. Writing in general has been really effective for me, but I have read several of my blogs or or essays in therapy. Like I read one about Mm -hmm. Brightburn... Talking about my mom, and then I one read one about um, just the other day, read the thing that I wrote about the Poughkeepsie tapes, which is going to be coming out in about a month, I think. But it's so, I guess, what I would say to that is be open to it if you have a client who mm-hmm. is that is really effective for it because it has been really, really effective. And I was hesitant to talk about it for a while because I felt kind of dumb. It's like, why am I talking about Gerald's game in my therapy? That's not real, but it just really mm-hmm. helped helps me see the world, and she was really open to it. She's like, no, one, she doesn't like horror, so she doesn't mind if I spoil all the movies because mm-hmm. she's not going to watch them. Um, right. But it's it's really helped me, and it's helped me to um, know that she is open to me bringing that into therapy, too. Yeah. So that's my what I would say. It's just, yeah. you know.
0: Yeah. In general, I would say, like, just even though it's, if a person hates horror movies, then I'm not going to say, go watch A Nightmare on Elm Street because right. you're having nightmares. But if a person, like, loves the Marvel movies, then we could incorporate a lot of the themes and characters into... So you could use that. If a person, like, absolutely loves horror movies, we could kind of explore the reasons why and then find, like, creative ways to look at themes or characters or other identifying characteristics. And we talked about it when we did Anxiety in our inaugural episode (laughs) and, like, why we love horror movies um, and how... There are specific functions of horror movies that can be really soothing to people that suffer from trauma or anxiety, Mm -hmm. which I'm looking forward to, like, exploring more in the future as well.
2: Yeah, totally. And I'll also say my therapist has never assigned me any movies to watch or said, hey, I think you should. Like, it's Mm -hmm. always me bringing it in, you know, which Mm -hmm. I think is Mm -hmm. an important part of that. Yeah. Uh, Should
0: we move on to his last inquiry? Yeah. All right, if you were going to be a late-night horror host, what would your host name be, what would be your shtick, and what film would you play for your first show? Mm.
1: I, I was so thrilled with this question, because I definitely thought about it before. <laughs> 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 so my name would be Anne Hedonia, mm. and I would be the Eeyore of Elvira's. <laughs> Oh, so uh, I'd have to start with something really sad. So it would probably end up being an Ari Aster film or maybe even an ep- a movie we've covered in an episode which is Lake Mungo. Uh, and a- anhedonia is, is a little pun because anhedonia, one word, means um, a lack of pleasure, being able to take pleasure <laughs> in anything. So mm-hmm. um, so anhedonia that's also my drag name and my roller derby name Aww. and my burlesque name. So mm-hmm. I, it's just, it's an all-purpose. It's either that or Big Pharma, which is a whole other kind of persona in my Um, I love it
2: when you call me Big Pharma.
0: So I used to host a indie horror movie night in Boston from 2009 to 2014. We did a indie movie night at a small theater in Boston and we showed like modern exploitation, uh, indie horror, like stuff that was like playing the festival circuit. So, my name would be Mike Chump Change, just because, like, since I was in college and put out a fanzine called Pocketful of Chump Change, I've always gone by that moniker online. And I don't really have a shtick. My shtick was like being a little bit like self depreciating. And I think my shtick was, like, trying to bring people together, like, make it more of a community type thing. And I can tell you that, like, I made some people that I'm, like, and even before doing this, like, I hosted a horror movie night in my fucking living room for years. And I still have, like, friends I may like, just show up and, like, bring a movie and I'll make food and we'll watch it, like... My shtick is like horror dad, I would say. <laughs> ah, I like Just that. It's the kind of the vibe that I give off. So Okay, I know how that. to
1: accessorize you now. I know exactly. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. it's all about branding babies. Nope. But, uh, you could be, uh, yeah. you could, since you're a therapist, too. I mean, obviously, I know you're not a, a doctorate, but I'm going to call you Dr. Dad. Mm-hmm. That's your new horror host name. And uh, <laughs>
0: yeah, I am definitely, we've talked to when, we, when we make the move to England of me going for like my doctorate, it's not a long program. And honest to God, it's fucking tempting just because I just want to be called Doctor Snooney. <laughs> I understand. Trust me. Trust me. If I get this ID one day, you better believe people are going to address me as doctor because yeah. if mm-hmm. I pay for that and put in the work, like I oh, will yeah. be that. I hate to say it, I will be that
1: guy. <laughs> oh, yeah. My dad My dad was that guy because he had a PhD. And so, you know, it's always it's Dr. honorstall mm-hmm. And that gave me the desire to also be Dr. honorstall mm-hmm. I can't be the last Dr. honorstall yeah. So mm-hmm. I understand. I understand yeah. the feeling.
0: Yeah. And Doctor of Funk just doesn't, I just can't, that doesn't cut yeah. it. Uh, you know what I mean? I just can't call myself the Doctor of Funk.
1: No, no, you um, can't. My first movie <laughs>
0: would probably be Rich, there's a filmmaker in Providence. He's done a ton of like low budget, super fun movies. Um Richard Marr Griffin, he did about like a decade ago like a sexploitation exorcist movie called the Disco Exorcist, which <laughs> to this, this. It, it brought out like the bear community in Boston to the yeah. to the um screening, which was great. And it was funny because the person who runs the door literally had to like basically not be my wingman, but basically like tell dudes like, now he's married. <laughs> so, you know, it was, I've told my wife, I'm like, if anything ever happens, hon, and I'm lonely, like if you ever pass before me and, and I just get lonely for companionship. like, go, oh, I think I'm switching sides? <laughs> I think I would just clean up. I don't know.
2: Yeah,
1: you would fit, you'd fit right in that niche, you know, if you know what I, I mean?
0: I really would. So the Disco Exorcist is really fun raunchy as hell like sex comedy horror movie and like he just makes movies for like 30 bucks that look awesome and they're really fun and cheesy so i would say that would be the first movie i would show i i was honest to god like right before we started today like he announced a new comedy he's doing and i'm like how do we i need to do somewhere in boston like a richard mark griffin like retrospective movie night where we just show like a half dozen of his movies because they're so much fun there's like a gay spy comedy called strapped for danger which <laughs> is
1: i'm uh, shocked yeah, that i haven't no. gone down this rabbit hole
2: before so i will yeah. find
0: you some of his stuff, please so please I do of that man so
2: well mine would be jenferatu and the way that that came about was i was just kind of driving one day and i was like what would my horror host name be so i mean And I was like, oh, I guess maybe it can be in my Twitter handle, too. Um, But yeah, that's what it would be. And I think my shtick would probably... Like, I used to joke that I wanted to be, like, the next Elvira. So it would be very similar to that, just because I think she's so cool. But... I mean, I have such a huge boner for Elvira. I mean, you can't not love her. And I know. Cassandra Peters, she's she's amazing. She's beautiful. I love her so much. I know. <laughs> like, yeah, I think, like, mm-hmm. I, maybe somewhere between, like, since I've kind of grown in my own, like, opinions and who I like having my own persona, I think I've kind of, I, love I think I would, I would probably fall a little closer to, like, Morticia Adams, kind of, just, like, mm-hmm. kind of celebrating, like, fun evilness, you know? Yeah. Um, I love like the the charismatic villains, you know. And my Mm -hmm. first, I mean, I got my first films would have to be Fright Night One, Fright Night Two, and the Fright Night remake. It Mm. would just be a big old triple feature, mostly because of my um, Twitter image. You know, is from Fright Night Two, and I just Mm -hmm. I love it. I've thought about changing it to my real face over the years, but it just I don't know. It's 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 yeah. Well, it's it's part of your brand now. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I just love it so. Yeah. That was a great question. That was really fun. Thanks. (laughs) Who is it? Is it me? I think it's back to you. (laughs) It's me. (laughs) Get ready for that, listeners. I'm sorry. Um, Stephanie from Books in the Freezer. Hey, Stephanie. And you should check out the podcast Books in the Freezer. It's about horror fiction and it's really cool. Um, So Stephanie from Books in the Freezer podcast asks, what are your least favorite tropes or cliches in horror films? And I have a big old one. I think the classic one is when they don't believe the woman. The woman senses something is amiss and nobody believes her. And, I think that's kind of falling away a little bit more because it was brought into a lot of it was brought into the fore a lot and saying, "Hey, this is a thing you keep doing. Stop writing it this way." Um but that's a big thing that bugs me. And then there's also slightly adjacent to that is when you spend most of your movie trying to convince people that this thing you saw really happened. Like it really really bugs me when um you don't see evidence of the ghost. Like, the gra- The larger group doesn't see evidence of the ghost till like, the last 15 minutes or something, as opposed to something like Final Destination, where, like, this is real, happens in the first 20, 30 minutes, and then the rest of the movie can be action-oriented against, okay, so now what are we going to do about it, you know? So those are my two kind of big, like, I don't like having to convince people of things, mm-hmm. you know?
1: Totally. Um, I feel like if I let myself think about this for a longer t- period of time, I could come up with a ton, but I'm going to keep it brief. Yeah. So I just was like the first thing that popped into my head when I heard this question is I hate when characters behave, st- quote, air quotes, stupidly, like the classic going upstairs to investigate the sound or you know you're in a group and you split up the group um and you're in the haunted asylum or whatever uh it's much scarier to me when characters behave rationally and still get their asses handed to them by mm-hmm. whatever the the yeah. villain of the film is
0: yeah there's i think one of the questions later on I'll there's a, a movie i think will be like behaving rationally but still kind of getting your ass handed to you that look forward to talking about mm-hmm. for me it's Somewhere after, like, the slasher boom of the 90s, like, we turned into the 2000s, it became the thing to write characters that you just hate. Mm -hmm. Like, the friend group, you just root for them to all die, and you root for the villain, which to me is less interesting. And not only that, but, like, you just couldn't believe that any of these people would ever associate with one another. So it's like, do any of these writers, like, know how human relationships and how friendships work? Mm -hmm. Like. That is probably my biggest pet peeve with a lot of horror. Like when you watch Scream, you felt like you could understand why that was a, why they were friends. Mm-hmm. You watch like Friday the Thirteenth, the final chapter, and you understand why that group of people like were friends with one another and how they enjoyed being around one another. Even like Ted and I can't think of Crispin Glover's character's name
2: now. I think it's Crispin like Glover. They would kind of- right?
0: He just, yeah, he just plays himself. Yeah. just like, <laughs> head, where's the corkscrew? <laughs> uh, you know, but he, you understood like, that even though when they ragged on one another, they were still like, looked out for one mm-hmm. another. And you compare that with say part seven, which the writer of that movie was told, here's the script for part four, just mimic it mm-hmm. and throw in telekinesis. And what he did is he did the same script, but everyone wore dicks to one another. Mm-hmm. And you're like, that's not interesting to me. Yeah. So
2: yeah, I agree. I feel like there was, for a while, this brand of humor where it was just everybody being assholes, you know? Yeah. So about
1: that's- all of the early 2000s. Like, yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Please, like, God, why? <laughs> right.
2: That edgelord shit. Yeah. So,
0: and, I've, and I've just added books in the freezer to my list of downloads, so I'm going to check that you out. You should
2: check it. It is a great podcast. Um, I was on an episode sure. talking about female Stephen King characters, so...
1: Very nice. One. It was fun. Seek yeah. that one
2: out, folks. Laura, you have the next one, I think. Yes,
1: I do. I sure do. Uh, An anonymous listener wrote in with a more personal question. They said, the recent episodes on narcissism were very interesting. However, and this is not a criticism, they made me uncomfortable in a way that other episodes hadn't. I worry that I recognize some of the tendencies of narcissism that you guys addressed in myself. Like Jen, I also have a narcissistic father and as I'm getting older, I get anxiety thinking of the possibility of becoming like him if I haven't already. The pandemic has put me in a predicament where I live with him now as well, which hasn't helped things. I'll be 33 soon and the past year has caused me to reflect a great deal on my behavior in previous relationships and it's made me deeply unhappy to think on what little care I put into others while I was in my 20s. So my quest... What practices would you recommend or partake in yourselves to mitigate these feelings? I want to change that much I do now. So... Obviously, I think <laughs> once again I'm going to look at the professional in the room, Mike, to <laughs> yeah. take to take this one on. Uh-huh. You know, for starters, thank you for for writing in with that question and being mm-hmm. vulnerable and and talking about those things. I think those are feelings that we all have, just one degree or another. Especially yeah. this year has been like a, a you know rumination and reflection machine because we've all been spending so much time by ourselves and with much fewer distractions. So I don't think you're alone there. Um, and to me, this is a thing I, I do. Th- really think this is a situation where you should lean on a professional uh, counselor or therapist, what have you, to help guide you and unpack those feelings and their origins, what you have or haven't done. Because I think trying to take on something as big as this on your own, even if you have self-help books and and you have podcasts like ours to sort of spark thoughts, I think that once those thoughts have been sparked, you should really turn to a professional for help unpacking these kind of feelings. Because I think it's also really, really easy to to pathologize and diagnose yourself mm-hmm. in these times where we are one of the one of the biggest signs of of depression is rumination and sort of passing over and over again on the same thought patterns. And you know, um, I know I'm doing that a lot myself. So I think that this is where um, reaching for outside help is really, really important. So, Mike, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on that?
0: yeah I think that's really well said, to be quite honest. And what struck me when I read this question is, first, thank you for like making yourself so vulnerable mm-hmm. because it is so hard for, I think, any of us to kind of like not only explore our own internal monologues to such a degree, but also to like tell others about them and tell others our 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 fears about ourselves. So, I think that this past year has been a year that we've all had to do a lot of self-reflection and we've all had to kind of turn our gaze inward in a way that makes a lot of us uncomfortable. And I think we've all had to realize some uncomfortable truths about ourselves that either we were not aware of or that we were able to either suppress or divert from just through our day-to-day existences and having to kind of exist in this world where you have work and friends and school and and all that. And then that was taken away from us for a year. What struck me when reading the question was just the fact that you're ruminating on what is it going to take to not become like my father. Mm -hmm. In and of itself shows me, demonstrates like a, an empathy for others and this desire to want to care for others and care for other person's feelings that wouldn't necessarily be present in a person that is going to tend towards narcissism. And that's just something I'm saying from afar. Now, obviously like Laura said, like this is something I would probably explore in great detail with a professional counselor, Um, not only for, you know, your own feelings about yourself, but also And we hate to admit this, like living with another person that has mental illness and having to kind of care for that person, but also tiptoe around them and manage and feel like that we are responsible to manage their emotions and their happiness. It's just really draining and exhausting thing. And I know that like, Jen, you spoke about this like really eloquently when you talked about your own father and what you had to do and how difficult that was. Um, How you were like, you know, have to kind of guard what you would say sometimes to not trigger a response from Mm -hmm. them. So I would say, you know, one of the things I would unpack with a professional are the ways that you're having to do that with your dad, especially right now where you're kind of living with him, Mm -hmm. how that's affected you and how that's affected your own outlook on things. That's probably where I would head with it. But to me, again, like this is just from afar, just the fact that you're kind of ruminating and like, how do I not Hurt other people? How do I look out for them and care for them? Like that alone is like a, a really positive indicator that like you, that you're going to be okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. This is something that I have talked a lot about in therapy is, am I a narcissist? Mm. Am I acting the way my parents acted, especially as my kids get older? And I actually cut it out of the last episode because I got really in my head about making everything mm. about me. Um, but I did, um, My therapist has told me exactly, Mike, what you just said. The fact that you're asking this question tells me that you are showing that kind of empathy. And I'm saying that about myself. That's what she said to me. So I think you're exactly right right there. And I think when you grow up watching someone model interactions with people from a place of narcissism, I have said some really mean things. I had a lot of really um, wrong ideas about the world, a lot of really selfish kind of ideation, just because that's what I grew up watching and that's what I thought Mm -hmm. was real. And I didn't, until I kind of got out of my father's house and started to see the rest of the world and see like possibilities in other people, like these narratives that he had been telling me about groups of people just weren't true that's when I started to really kind of reckon with things. And I have really beat myself up about a lot of things that I've said in the past and um, a lot of things that I've done. And I've apologized to people. Um, I'm not necessarily suggesting you do that, but that's just part of my journey in dealing with this. But I've also kind of started to give myself grace for that and to say, you know, this was an emotionally abusive relationship that I was living in. And like, I remember what we talked about in the last episode, like, it's mental health is what it, gosh, Laura, how did you say it? Mental health, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Your responsibility which is a Marcus Parks from last podcast mm-hmm. quote. Yeah. yeah. and I, I One that always really stuck with me. And so that's what I kind of have been holding in my head. Like, okay, it wasn't necessarily my fault that I had these ideas and that I said and did these things and treated these people this way. But it is now my responsibility to question that, question my motivations and not do that again. And so Mm -hmm. that's kind of been my journey with it. But I thank you so much for reaching out about this because it's definitely something that I've experienced, you know, so.
0: So from Patrick. Patrick asks, are you planning to do an episode on autism spectrum or other neurodivergent disorders? I personally love Hermione Corfield's performance as Siobhan in Sea Fever, and I absolutely hate John Travolta's performance in The Fanatic. Mm. Yeah, I would I would say we're definitely going to get to the autism spectrum at some point. And I'm thinking like Texas, the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre mm. um, and that original portrayal of Leatherface mm-hmm. in a lot of ways would probably be a movie, like that's how I would kind of that's a movie that I would include in there to cover it. But I do think that like there is so much misinformation out there about autism and there's mm-hmm. so much right. misunderstanding about it that I think that when we eventually do get to it, I do want to have other professionals on. I know that I have worked with persons on the spectrum and it it's been a struggle for me to kind of come. I think I have a better understanding now than I did when I started in 2015 but it's still an area that I need like a lot more understanding yeah to be quite honest because it's something that we say this like every millions of people are affected by depression but the important thing is how it affects the individual Mm -hmm. like no two people are going to be the same but I think like autism in particular I think because it presents in so many different ways to so many different persons that it's something that I want to be extremely sensitive towards. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and hopefully that we treat it in a very respectful way that, you know, preserves the dignity of that community.
1: Yeah. And that's exactly what I, I thought as well is that, you know, I would love to have a guest who is neurodivergent themselves Some or someone from within the autism community, um, to sort of speak to that. Cause there's even within the uh, autism community, there's a lot of discourse happening right now. Um, and I don't think that's something we would want to misrepresent or, or mishandle in any yeah. way. So I agree.
2: Yeah. Well, and that's something like I have worked with a lot of students with autism, but the thing is like the the catchphrase is if you've seen one kid with autism, you've seen one kid with autism because mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. kid is completely different, you know, cause they're individuals. And so I think if we were to talk about, like, I really struggled to come up with a positive portrayal that I could think of because I think it's just so mm-hmm. different. So I think what we would really be talking about sometimes, are maybe the negative portrayals, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, we would just want to be very careful about that. The one that immediately comes to mind is, um in the regulators, and it's not a movie, but it's a Stephen King mm-hmm. book. I think the portrayal of autism there is particularly dated and um, yeah. misinformed in a lot of ways. Um, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: I think that like, well, the the nature of the show we do being that we're covering horror movies, like, it's not exactly the most positive portrayal of like any mental illness. Right,
1: right.
0: So it's like, it's, it's kind of difficult to kind of come up with like, Hey, here is like panic disorder done in a super shining positive right, way. Like,
1: right.
0: so it's, it's definitely a hard thing. I think that we can, you know, and I, I specifically, when I think of like the possibility, and I actually asked one of our, like a nerd divergent listener from one of my, from my other show, Like, if I were to write about Leatherface and autism, like, would that be something that, you know, could be insensitive? And in that person's opinion was like, nope, like, as long as you handle it in a, you know, in a respectful way, I think it can be done. So I think that's the key to it. And
2: I want to also say Nicole Goebel in the Bodies of Horror podcast, I think she has Mm -hmm. an episode on Leatherface and I think Jason, Mm -hmm. I think she paired those two together. Um, And I don't know if she was specifically approaching it with autism in mind, but you should check that podcast out because it's great. if
0: i remember correct it was and i need to listen to that specific episode it was specifically focused on the character of franklin mm-hmm. in texas chainsaw massacre that's from a disability why.
1: perspective yeah yeah yeah, yeah.
0: so <laughs> but i need to go back and listen well, to I it think so she's she maybe she because
2: okay. i know she talked about Um, leather face at some point. But just check that podcast out in general, because I think she like we are looking at it this a lot as a mental health angle. And I think she's kind of doing very similar things, but just looking at it from like disability.
0: I kind of lack the ability to put this into like a really sharp focus, but I'm kind of surprised that autism is in the DSM. If mm-hmm. that makes sense. Like, I don't necessarily feel like it's a mental illness. Right. And I feel like that is... I think it's evolving. That me, like,
1: that, mm-hmm. that, the yeah. conversation around it is evolving. And, and like, I mean, the mm-hmm. DSM has been known for holding on to things way past the po- a point of being mm-hmm. reasonable. I mean, homosexuality was defined yes. as mm-hmm. a, as a mental illness and, you know...
0: From the eighties, right? Yeah. I mean, until like, the, it was
1: it was some really disturbingly late date. Mm-hmm. Um, So, you know, like any other, other thing, the... The psychological community, the psychiatric community, will will you know, um, hold on to to really dated and harmful notions of things, and I think the way that we talk about autism is going to change radically um, over the next. Few years over the next decade, yeah. it's going to look completely different. So, yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like the regulators that I said, like it was written in the 90s, and I think it very much reflected the understanding of autism in the 90s. And mm-hmm. we just, there's just so much that we're learning about that. Um, and I think that's going to be reflected through horror. But I think we're kind of yeah. at the beginning of really showing compassionate representation there.
1: Mm-hmm. And uh, even if you, yeah, there's an author, I just thought of, um, named Kay Redfield Jamison, She's a psychiatrist from Johns Hopkins, but she is bipolar. And she has a whole sort of argument for bipolar disorder being really valuable to humanity. Um, mm-hmm. And that like her whole thing is like when we treat certain conditions, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's not let like, mm-hmm. sort of human spark in the conversation.
2: Yes. Okay. So I just looked it up and Nicole Goebel does have two episodes on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. She does have one specifically about Franklin. And then she has Mm. another episode talking about Jason and Leatherface. And that's just a fantastic pod. So make sure you check it out. And she was on our Children of the Corn episode and she's delightful. Is it me? I think it's I think it's you. Sorry. I think it's you. I know. It's made this difficult. (laughs) I know. Um, So we have another question from Aaron. Um, which movies would you recommend to start a non-horror fan off with horror? Um, ease them into the concept of horror as social commentary. Hmm. So I guess it would depend on the person because I have, I recommended Pet Cemetery to my friend as her first horror thing. And that was a mistake because she was <laughs> a lot more sensitive to it than I was expecting. Um, so I've got two suggestions. One, I think um, Assassination Nation. I fucking love that movie. I think that, um, horror as social commentary I think that is a really good representation of it and that's a pretty polarizing movie which I think leads into that is a good representation of social commentary in general that is a pretty extreme movie though so if it's a more sensitive or younger person I would suggest mm. scary movies scary stories to tell in the dark more because I think that sh- that movie really kind of um, ha- there's a lot of empathy in that movie and just the idea of sharing stories and the power of like identifying with different people. I think it's just really powerful. And that, I think for maybe a younger horror viewer, that could be a good place to start.
1: Absolutely. I feel like I should have done a deeper dive on this and I'm kind of kicking myself for not like going more in depth th- through my Letterboxed list of horror films that I've watched because that's the only way that I keep track of anything. I think you could not go wrong with Get Out, oh, um, yeah. especially for being both commercially appealing, kind of having pop sensibility, um, being very contemporary and, f- and funny and fun to watch, but also having a obviously a very powerful social message uh, similar, actually the one that I brought up earlier, culture shock would be a really good one because it's kind of got like, it was made for Hulu. It's kind of like very like fun and modern, but it's about, um, our, the immigration process in America and, and, and the horrors of, of trying to immigrate to America. Um, and so I think it's got a lot of, a lot of social commentary there under the shadow that Iranian film um, would be another really good one um, in terms of looking at a specific cultural moment and and, you, and but also a um, mother daughter relationship and the feminism in general mm-hmm. and then horror context and those are three movies that are all very different um but i think have elements that i think could ease someone in to horror maybe under the shadow might be the like scariest of the bunch in terms of like jumping out at you and kind of creeping you out and stuff but i again like you said like my radar is a little off because of having seen so many horror movies as to what people will actually be able to tolerate who may Mm -hmm. not be a horror fan so i think all of those are fairly safe bets yeah
0: This is such a hard question, just because I think it really boils down to the individual and what their taste is and other entertainment. Like, I might, to me, like Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein would be a great jumping in point. But if a person doesn't like to watch black and white or older movies, then it's not going to do anything for them. So if they really enjoy, like, comedies... You know, I might go for like a a really good horror comedy. If they enjoy like dramatic or romantic movies, like rom coms, I might go with something like Spring or um, Soulmate from Axel Carolyn, Mm -hmm. uh, who is just fantastic. Her episode on Creepshow, by the way, was great. Mm -hmm. So it really, I think it really depends on the individual. Like I would say, if someone really is a fan of comedies, you can't go wrong with Army of Darkness, yeah, it has action, it's really funny, it's really campy and silly, but it's not, like, Evil Dead 2 is my favorite of the trilogy. But actually, no, the first Evil Dead is my favorite, and I think Evil Dead 2 is most person's favorite of the trilogy. But I think if a person doesn't like horror, then what connects fans to that movie, they're not gonna like Evil Dead 2. Mm -hmm. But Army of Darkness, it's kind of like a lot, that, style but scaled back a little bit to hit a broader audience so that might be like if you want a specific title i think you can't go wrong with bruce
1: campbell totally and i think also i usually when i have friends who i'm like recommending horror films for that i know are are not big horror hounds i kind of ask like what are your no-nos like what are the things that are you find sort of intriguing about horror and what are the things that are you find repellent about it and i would tailor my list accordingly i you know Mm -hmm. i can always sort of sense if my friend is a more ghost type person a Mm -hmm. more creepy demons kind of person or are they more into the um true crime serial killer kind of stuff like then i can sort of tailor my suggestions to the Mm -hmm. that
2: person it's like you're setting them up on a date you
1: know, it's one of my favorite yeah. things to do. If somebody's like, I'm kind of interested in getting into horror, I'm like, oh, please. And I'll make a whole list for them. It's a whole thing.
2: Yeah. That's how I am with Stephen King books. I'm like, well, tell me about your life. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. exactly. It's fun. All right. Should we move on to the next yeah. question? Mm-hmm.
1: So Pete asks Since y'all started the show with the topic of anxiety and only got to do one episode, and it happens to be a pretty pervasive topic in horror, Do you think you'll revisit anxiety for another slash a more nuanced look at it? And um, my immediate response was, yes, I I have often thought that this should be the first topic we go back to if we decide to double back to a topic for a deeper Mm -hmm. dive. Because, like Pete said, it is so pervasive. There's so many movies to choose from. And it's also one of my pet favorite topics as a very anxious person. Mm
0: -hmm. So I want to ask Pete about this whole, like, uh, more nuanced look, Pete. They mean more nuance. <laughs> I think we were plenty goddamn. Nuanced. I think we've
1: offended Mike. Um,
0: no, I kid, I kid. <laughs> Watch we out! We have made a powerful. you have made a powerful enemy today.
1: Um, <laughs>
2: yeah, Doctor Dad so is now mad. Sorry.
0: <laughs> yes, um, absolutely. Like, there's a number of topics, like anxiety being near the top of the list, grief being another. I would say toxic relationships being another. Like, there's so many that, but we have so many topics we haven't gotten to yet. But I would say that, like anxiety would probably be the first one that we would kind of go back to at some point because we only really got to do let's scare Jessica Mm -hmm. to death on it. Um, So we will definitely, we're definitely looking forward to kind of revisiting it with some other um, favorites in the future.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Every time we finish a topic, I think, Oh, we want to come back to this because I feel like there's more here, you know? So I want to do more on everything we've talked about so far, but yeah, anxiety, anxiety, I would love to go back. I have no idea what movie we would pick though, because I think as I watch movies, I see a lot of anxiety in it, but I I feel like it's in connection to something else. You know, I think I'm tending Mm -hmm. now to look at movies like, oh, this is about this. And there's also anxiety, because I feel like anxiety is so pervasive. I think the movie that comes to mind for me is maybe Rosemary's Baby, I think. I don't know Mm -hmm. if anxiety is the first thing I would choose for that, though. So I don't know. I I think I'm also having a hard time seeing outside of my own anxiety right now. So it could just be that I feel the weight of it all the time. But yeah, would love to go back to that one.
1: All right. Should we move on to our next question? Yes,
0: our next question is from Nicole. I was wondering if any of you feel imposter syndrome (laughs) in terms of putting your content out into the world. I want to try doing a horror movie podcast with my best friend, but whenever I think about starting, I think, why should anyone care what I have to say? Do you have any tips on how to feel confident putting content out?
1: Well, I just wanted to say, I mean, my immediate response. So this was yes, of course, all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, my advice is just like to ignore it and hope that it goes away, even though it never probably completely will. And also, I've gotten really lucky in getting to, you know, sort of ride on the coattails of people who either have less imposter syndrome or who have already kind of had the ball rolling. Um, if I didn't have Jen and Mike here, and honestly, if the losers club guys had never asked me to participate in the first place, I probably would never have started my own podcast for those exact same reasons. I'm like, but if you had asked me a few years ago, I'd be like, yeah, like there needs to be another freaking podcast with like a a person like who thinks they're funny, like saying stuff like, dear Mm -hmm. God, no. Um, It still honestly boggles my mind that anyone wants to hear me talk. So my advice would be ignore that voice and, you know, hitch on to some other people who have uh, more momentum than you do.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, my my answer was, I wrote, yes. Oh, God, yes. (laughs) The imposter syndrome. It's like crushing me sometimes um, because I have definitely felt that. I deal with that a lot. Um, I'm excited about you wanting to start a podcast, though, because I've also gotten a lot of empowerment from talking about this. Like I've said before, it's been a huge part of my therapy. I love that you said you want to do it with your best friend because I think that is key. Like the thing that has helped me keep going, like Laura was saying, was being able to talk to Mike and Laura about this, like when when I'm feeling like shit and like, Oh, I'm an idiot. Like I talked to them and they kind of have talked me down a little bit. I've also talked to um, Mike Rothman from the losers club about that a lot. Cause I used to like, whenever we would record, I would text him and be like, does everybody hate me? And so (laughs) finding like a trusted person where you can kind of dump off that pressure a little bit, I think has really helped me a lot. Um, And for the question of why should anybody care what I have to say? That's something that I've also talked about in therapy a lot. Um, specifically with my writing, I think, and what I kind of have talked myself around to is it's not necessarily why would anybody care. I just think it's really important to have more voices out there and, like, really kind of expand conversations. And I think, like, I've probably talked about this before, but I remember, like... I don't remember even how long ago it was, but I had just had a miscarriage and I was walking around the grocery store and I kept here I kept seeing all of these magazines with all these pregnant celebrities and I just felt so alone and nobody was talking about these things. And so when I think about like what we talk about on the show, I think if people don't care what I have to say, I can live with that. But if somebody hears it, and and this is when I don't want to sound like I'm like anybody's savior or anything, but if it, if it makes it easier for somebody else to talk about it, then that's what I think I'm offering, you know, and that helps me kind of get over the, does anybody care, you know, because somebody will care. Somebody in the world will hear you and care what you have to say. So yeah.
0: So, I'll address the why you should do a podcast first is I love the idea of doing a podcast with your best friend. And I would say that some of my favorite shows, the ones that I tend to gravitate towards, like Saturday Night movie Sleepovers with Dion and uh Jay Blake Fashera, the author of Score to Death, like our two best friends that, like, just shoot the shit about movies, um, horror, etc., cetera, which is unfortunately the archives aren't even up, but it was a long running podcast in the late tens to early tens that were like two to three best friends that would just like shoot the shit on horror movies and do a really, that is what actually made me want to do a horror podcast. And at the time I traveled on the road and I listened to like just hundreds of hours of their show in my favorite podcast ever is one called The Lapsed Fan, and it's two best friends that just, like, could talk for eight hours about old wrestling shows. But it's incredibly diligent and well-researched, but it comes with also the camaraderie and the warmth of, like, friendship Mm -hmm. where they get the in-jokes, like, so you – it just, like, you – I love shows like that. I think that that is the best way to do a show – um, totally. if you want to dm me on twitter you can definitely do that i'd be more than happy to give you any advice on like what to do to get started mm-hmm. and i would just say do it because you want to do yeah. it and you want to have fun with it i do not have imposter syndrome <laughs> when it comes to <laughs> When it comes to my school job, I always feel like this is the day they find out that I'm a fraud <laughs> when I walk in the door. As a therapist, I feel like I know that I'm new and I have a lot to learn, but I think that I have like the potential to be very good. But I know that I still have a ways to go to get there, but I'm confident that I will, that I'll put the work in. When it comes to doing, it's funny, we were talking about this off air. I have enough Bravado, I think, for all three of us, because I, I will say this and Jen, you may cut it out. I don't hope <laughs> you don't. I think between this and my other show that I'm a part of two of the best damn horror movie <laughs> podcasts in the fucking world. <laughs> so I love what we do, and I will say that for the past couple of years, it's definitely kept me sane. Mm-hmm. Um I have met and and I will say the key is like work with persons like Jen and Lara and Lindsay. Uh, Travis and my other show that are extremely intelligent and empathetic and make you look at the world in completely different ways and just ride the coattails of their hard work. <laughs> um, but it's funny. I, we all seem to
1: think we're writing each other's coattails. I know. Right. It's more like a, Which is a good, But king. I think we're all,
0: <laughs> but I think we, we all bring like different, I think also like work with persons that like, where you complement one another's strengths yeah. in Don't be afraid like when someone calls you on your bullshit to like be like to listen and don't dig a line in the sand. I mean, there have been times where like I've been called out on stuff and and it's like I should listen. I love what we do. And I will say this like I will put this show, which I think is really unique, up against really anything else that is out there and feel pretty confident in where we would rank overall. So I have I mean, look cisgender heterosexual white middle-aged dude (laughs) so god love you that's where a lot of that confidence probably comes from
1: let's all just siphon it off of my (laughs) can yeah so
0: just siphon off my but i i don't know like i just think that like there's a certain amount of narcissism that comes with like putting your work out there in general to feel like you want to get your words out there um
2: And I will also say like starting a podcast, you will find listeners and people will care about what you have to say. It might not happen right away. So don't get in your head about that. Like if you love it, if you're getting a lot out of it, keep going and eventually people are going to find you and people are going to want to listen, you know.
1: It's an endurance game and especially with how crowded the space is, it's just going to take time to get to find listeners. But like you just said, they'll be out there.
0: No, listen to a lot of other podcasts yes. that are similar in theme to what you want to do. Number one, it'll help you find guests. Mm-hmm. Number two, you'll be exposed to a lot of worldviews outside of your own and different perspectives. And that will just make you a wiser, more empathetic, kinder person. And then just steal their work without citation.
2: No, don't, <laughs> don't do, do that. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it will help you refine what you, your own voice, you know, like it kind of helps Absolutely. you like, like focus what you want to do, you know. And I'll also say, uh, Joe Lipsit, who was on our Black Christmas episode, he works with the Anatomy of a Scream Pod mm-hmm. Squad, and they, um, I think have been starting helping new podcasters kind of get started. So follow him on Twitter. I think B stole my remote. Um, an Anatomy of a Scream, um, Pod Squad to look out. Every once in a while, they put out a call for pitches for new pods. So that's a way to go, and you could get some support there. But yeah, go for it. And when you do, let us know. We want to listen to it. Okay, so on to our next question. Um, A few people wrote in about the next one, including Nicole and Jacqueline. And Nicole asked, in relation to bonding with her brother who has schizophrenia over horror films, do you think watching horror movies can cause or worsen someone's schizophrenia or other mental health issues? And Jacqueline wrote, my mom often gives me a hard time about watching horror, saying it puts me in a bad mindset, in quotes. Do you think the argument that horror obsessives have a role in perpetuating slash feeding their own fears and traumas has any validity? To what extent, if any, do you think watching horror and sparking that part of our brains affects us negatively?
0: So these are my two favorite questions, mm-hmm. I think, like combining them mm-hmm. together. Watching horror movies is not going to worsen someone's schizophrenia. That's it's I would say that like what you're doing with your brother in like bonding with him and showing him like love and compassion and warmth and empathy is going to help him and not hurt him. And if horror movies are the mechanism in which the two of you do that, then that should be applauded and not taken away. Do I think that horror movies cause or worsen someone's mental health issues? This is where Billy Loomis and I must diverge (laughs) in opinion. Mm In that, um, or is it like they don't make, they make,
2: God
0: they don't it. create the psychopaths.
2: Horror? They make psychopaths more make creative, more. may not be. Excellent. psychopaths. Yeah. I might be misquoting.
0: I would say that like, they don't do that. Otherwise you would have like a rash of like Jason Voorhees inspired yep. killers out there. <laughs> um, so my personal opinion is that most research shows that how horror is actually tremendously beneficial for persons that suffer from a variety of mental health issues, specifically anxiety and trauma. it is found that for a number of reasons, number one, it can help normalize those issues. Number two, it can help a person see themselves represented on screen and find, when they see characters coping with those situations, it can help them develop new and healthy ways to cope as well. Number three, in particular with anxiety and trauma, just the ability to pause a movie at home, mm-hmm. get up and take a break from it and have a breather has given persons the ability. Like Research has shown it's given them the ability to show like, oh, I can take a break from this. I can have control over this. It doesn't necessarily have to control me and i apologize i don't have the research articles in front of me if
1: you there was so well i was gonna say if you go back to our very very first episode the uh-huh. welcome to psychoanalysis we quote all of that literature because that was kind of what we we're talking about in our very first episode was like mm-hmm. why are some of us drawn to horror even though we're anxious depressed mm-hmm. yada yada um, mm-hmm. and we were quoting a lot of that literature in that episode so if you need something uh-huh. to send to your uh relatives that won't shut the hell up <laughs> You can just send them that first episode. I'll see if I can link it also.
0: This always comes up like, do violent video games cause people to kill people? Does violent music cause damage? I would say that, like, art, one of the main functions of art, whether really whether it's horror movies or any sort of fiction or any sort of art, I think one of the things that can do is normalize the stories of others. Mm-hmm. And that's why I really hope that we see more queer representation in horror or trans representation in art, um, more persons of color have the ability to explore their stories in a number of ways. Because I think that like art gives us the ability to kind of and I've said this a couple times already, like experience worldviews and points of view outside of our own very narrow one. Other studies have shown that like people that tend to live their whole lives in the same community that they were born into tend to skew far more conservative uh, because they're just exposed to the same thing over and over. So Mm -hmm. going off on a little bit of a tangent here, but... I would say that horror doesn't put you in a bad mindset. Horror can actually help you come to terms with some of the things that you might struggle with in your life. I know that it always has for me. I don't think you're feeding your own traumas at all. I think you're feeding your resiliency mm-hmm. and I think you're feeding your coping mechanisms. So that's what I would say to both Jacqueline and Nicole. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think a lot of people who are not drawn to horror or who are not horror fans, they just kind of look at the cover of the film or they just see, Oh, blood and guts. And like, they just don't, they fundamentally cannot grasp how you can have a positive experience taking in that kind of media. And I, in my opinion, that really is a lack of empathy or of being, uh, you know, unwilling to understand experiences other than your own. Um, And I, I think, you know, you could say the same about a lot of imagery, like Mike just said, in video games, music, yada, yada. Um, and I really do think it all comes down to how, why, and when you are watching these movies and listening to your own mind and body. Like, I think we all have hor- certain types of horror film that we don't enjoy watching. Mm-hmm. I know I have certain hard no's for me, and it's like horror is not this monolith. So if you are watching something and it is you know, affecting, you negatively don't watch it. But for the most part, we're drawn to those things that... You know, we're drawn to them for a reason, and it's, you know, <laughs> some of the best and most, you know, well-adjusted people I've ever met have come from within the horror community, so it is certainly not like this band of freaks and maniacs with hooks for hands, mm-hmm. just blood pouring out of our mouths, as cool as that would be. <laughs> it's not yeah. the case. There's
2: was a bunch of, like, Cenobites, you know? With-
1: yeah, if we could all, if we all just were Cenobites, <laughs> that'd be pretty
2: Cool. I mean, that I would not <laughs> say no. Yeah, I kind of agree. Like, I think one of the reasons that I'm really drawn to Stephen King and that I really like his writing is, is, you know, he's not a perfect person and he's not a perfect writer, but I think he is really good at really empathetically writing a lot of different characters. And that was one of the first ways I think I was exposed to a lot of different kind of thought processes and mindsets. Um, and have since expanded that with a lot more of the horror that I watch. But i that's one of the things that I really get out of horror. But I will also say, like, kind of building on what Laura was saying, um, listen to yourself. Like, if this seems like it's too much or maybe maybe today is not the day I watch Poughkeepsie tapes, like, right. listen to that. There is nothing wrong with turning a movie off and saying, you know what? Not today. The, it took me three times to get through The Babadook because it was affecting me. And I was like, I this is not the time and that's one of my favorite movies now um so i do think that it can put it can put me in a mindset because the way that i watch horror i'm a extremely empathetic person and i've had to kind of manage how i allow myself to get into mindsets sometimes and if i can feel myself kind of tipping into something i'm just not really comfortable with i kind of back off i'm also very aware of my limitations about The kinds of stuff that I want to watch so I would say just just listen to that and that is not Anything wrong with horror or anything wrong with you or anything wrong with the movie It is just it's okay to have different responses to movies at different times and to listen to that. So Yeah, all right.
1: Well up next we have two questions from aaron who wrote to us in our facebook group So, um, let's address this one first and then we'll address the second one Uh, What's the worst example of mental illness or psych issues in the genre? Like, what movie is just a dumpster fire from a messaging and or representation perspective?
2: I don't know if I really want to call any specific movie out on this because I'm still kind of working through how I feel about it and it changes on different days. But I think I have a problem with um, some earlier rape revenge movies. Um, yes. That's not necessarily a mental health topic, but I think the um, just the way that is depicted a lot of times I think is not as sensitive as I want it to be and not as sensitive as m- more modern movies are. So I think that would be mine. And again, I'm not going to call any other any specific movies out. Because I know that that is a very personal response. That's a genre that people have really personal responses to movies. And I don't want to take away that from anyone else. But that's that's just a very fraught topic, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I mean, I'm, I'm struggling to, th- like, um off the top of my head, think of full-blown movies that are just, like, a hot mess, you know, with every single thing in it. Um, I mean, the, the thing that jumps to my mind, and it's a, still a movie that I love, is, like, Dr. Loomis and Halloween just being, like, a terrible therapist in getting everything wrong you know <laughs> yeah. um stuff like that or like even just the way that buffalo buffalo bill is represented in silence of the lambs there's a lot of stuff in that movie that i still think is really great but i do agree that that was a, a huge huge misstep with that caused a lot of harm but but mm-hmm. i'm struggling to think of any movie that like from top to bottom you know is just completely wrong and i mean you get into like early horror films that are just very more and that fall, fall more into camp in my mind like even going down to like the cabinet of dr caligari or something like that but it's it's just operating on a different level and it's not something i'm like oh yeah this is i'm looking to this for a realistic portrayal of what sleepwalking is like you know (laughs) um Mm -hmm. i don't know if you have any thoughts mike
0: no it's funny because it's you know I still love Silence of the Lambs. I mean, I do too. It's just it's, just, it's it. I
2: mean, it's a masterpiece of, of of cinema. It's just got some issues. So yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's got Which is okay
2: to address. Like both of those things can live at the same time, you know? Right. Right.
0: I think we're like, I think that we're 30 years removed from it. And I think we have a much better understanding of trans issues and we're much more sensitive to it now. I think the unfortunate thing is, if it wasn't such an effective movie, the trans issue would be because there are other movies that do a an, also do a poor oh, job yeah. of representing yeah. gender issues, but they're also like not nearly as well made. And because this movie is stuck with the collective consciousness for so long, it's done like a lot of harm to that community, mm-hmm. uh, which is really unfortunate because of how many other things that it does so well. Mm-hmm. I would say like. I find Rob Zombie's movies like tough to take. Same, me <laughs> too. Unfortunate because like he's someone I root for because he's just when you hear interviews with him, he's so intelligent. He obviously has nothing but love for and respect for the genre, but I just think that like, and I like his Halloween too a lot. I should say, like I think his second Halloween is actually kind of brilliant, but his first remake of Halloween where it just becomes like Michael Myers this way because of like a paint the numbers. Like if you were watching like a true crime documentary on like the on true TV, that's what would have caused Michael Myers. It's such a misstep. And then just having like every single character in every single movie be this kind of like white trash, you know, rage of file just it just
1: I don't know. Yeah, it leaves a bizarre. T- and I and I like a lot of what he's going for, and I like how he has a lot of style in terms of like uh, yeah. paying homage to exploitation films and stuff like that. But I just there's just the whole tonality of it rubs me the wrong way.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I find that he drifts into exploitative too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah.
0: Which he wants to be an exploitation filmmaker, then, and he's influenced by those 1970s exploitation movies. Like that's fine, but I just think like. I would be really interested to have him come up with stories and have other people script them. Yes, and then have, and then have him them film it. I think he yeah. he shoots a wonderful yes. movie. And you know, like Lords of Salem is his his kind of take on Italian horror, and it's mostly wonderful. The
1: aesthetics of it, I think, are really great. I remember yeah. after it was over, being kind of like. Huh. All right.
0: That third act. But yeah, it's
1: a bit. little, yeah. It's yeah. not fresh sure. on my mind either, so I'm not going to sit here and talk about it. But sure.
0: <laughs> And it's actually yeah. someone that I, I, I root for. I know, like, him and Eli Roth, I think they're both from Newton, Mass, or the Newton area. And out of those two, like, I root for one of them to do really well. <laughs> and I said his mm-hmm. name already.
2: <laughs> yeah, I kind of feel that way, too.
0: Next one from... What's your biggest night fuel thing in horror? Like what hits all your nightmare freak out buttons?
1: Thing. You said huh? night fuel, just nightmare oh, fuel. My bad. No, sorry, on night, night fuel. <laughs> sorry.
0: <laughs> What's your biggest nightmare fuel thing in horror? Like what hits all your freak out buttons and sticks with you when you have to pee in the middle of the night? Erin's uh, answer was alien geometries. She has an article here from TV tropes, think as above, so below, or grave encounters, mm. or house of leaves, where the dimensions inside the house are several interests bigger than the outside. Anything where physical laws suddenly stop working.
2: And I'm going to link that article.
1: Yeah. Honestly, you know, when you call it out that way, I think that is a big thing for me, too, because like, um, I recently saw the movie Relic. And that's a thing that kind of happens in that that movie where it's just that idea. I'm also very claustrophobic or the idea of being inside a place that you can't get out of, even if it's not physically small, you know, like I it's, blah, 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 I just start wanting to like absolutely freak <laughs> out. I also have a thing and I don't know if it's really, I can't think of any examples of it right off the top of my head, but it's the kind of thing where I always expect if, if it's dark and I look over, I expect to see a face looking at me from out of the shadows, like um just like something just being there that was like always there and kind of hidden in plain sight. So whenever there's a moment in a movie where it's like quiet and there isn't like a stinger associated with it, but there's just somebody like a figure that is just on screen and is just like staring at, at the main character or staring into the camera or something that always kind of gives me the heebie jeebies. Mm-hmm.
2: I would say um, gore, body horror; those are my big ones. Like Laura, you told me um, just a brief synopsis of Tattoo, t- Tattoo, the Iron Man. Nope. Yeah, you, you should like, not watch that movie. Jen. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> like even just hearing the the opening scene, I was like, nope, not for me. It's specifically scars and stitches that really, really bother me. And I think, like, I think I talked about a little of why I think that might be a thing for me in the very first episode. But yeah, that's that's my big one. I also, um, ocean movies, like I was watching one of the, uh, 47 meters down movies and was getting like sick to my stomach. Like the, oh, wow. the, the open water kind of stuff really, really bothers me too. So yeah, those are my, those are mine that I tend to avoid. So
0: for me, it's and you know, this kind of falls under that alien geometries a bit. Um, and I would agree like house of leaves is probably the, you know, it's the book that got under my skin, more than any other book I've ever read. And it's not even that it's scary, but it's just written in such a way that there were points where I just found, like, my stomach was in knots and I would have to put it down. But I, if you ask me why, I couldn't tell you why. It just, I found myself getting really unnerved. Raven Counters. it's funny, I watched that with my wife. I did a rewatch of it and she watched it for the first time and, the moment that they open the door that should let them out of the building mm-hmm. and it opens to another hallway, <laughs> she was completely freaked out. Like it kept her up all night, really? basically.
1: I, I love that movie. I do yeah, too.
0: because it's just like she's a very rational, logical person. And like that illogic, like really freaked it, just messed with her head.
1: And that's it's funny because that is like a lot of my nightmares are like that, yeah. actually, where mm-hmm. I'm I'm stuck in in buildings that mm-hmm. seem to just keep going. And I was like, I know I just came yeah. in this way. It's it's just funny. It never really clicked to me that those two things are related, mm-hmm. but that is a recurring it's not that I have recurring dreams, but it's a recurring like, geometry or recurring, like, landscape in my dreams. Mm -hmm.
0: I just watched Vivarium this week. Jesse Eisenberg, Imogen Poots, Mm -hmm. they play this couple that they go to look at a home in the suburbs, and it basically becomes this giant maze they can't escape, Mm -hmm. and they're just trapped alone, and it's like they're being watched. And things like that where you can't escape Mm -hmm. are things that really mess with me in ways um, that movie definitely hit a lot of buttons in terms of just the idea of aging and this idea of like your, once you have children, you've kind of fulfilled your purpose mm-hmm. and your life is no longer your own. Your life is kind of given over to somebody else. Uh it's streaming on Hulu right now, I believe, or mm-hmm. maybe Amazon Prime. No, it's on Amazon Prime for sure. It's a sci-fi horror movie. It's a very small, insulated work of sci-fi horror that is probably going to keep me lying awake at nights thinking about it <laughs> for
1: months. So
2: That's me and Tetsuo right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, Leisha wants to know who is the best representation of a therapist in movies and I just I love Dr. Loomis I think he really really helps Michael I'm kidding (laughs) I was like what no Jen no I just wanted to just poke Mike a little bit Um, yeah I had a really hard time thinking of a person so I went in the opposite direction so I'm not really answering your question but I my favorite example of therapy or recovery in a movie, and it's one that gets a lot of shit, so I'm going to stand up for it, is at the end of Gerald's Game. I love the last 10 minutes of that movie. I know people think it is cheesy, but man, I love watching Jessie like, really get the closure she wants. And we don't see her in therapy, although we see her counseling someone else. But I just love that ending a lot Mm -hmm. is is but is I get the criticism of it I really do understand it but I love that that 10 minutes means a lot to me you know
1: sure and I'm struggling to think of any because especially within the genre of horror there's not really a lot of like good therapists and that's kind of an interesting thing it's not really it's like anybody that is an authority figure in horror films is either doing something bad or helpless in the face of an immeasurable evil so you either yeah. get dr loomis or you get dr Lecter. you know those are your your prototypes mm-hmm. um so I'm, I'm struggling to think of any real positive representation of therapy <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah
0: i i honestly couldn't come up with one <laughs> the closest i could was um in h2 rob zombies h2 like it's a uh, Margot kidder has like one or two scenes as a psychotherapist for lori and I mean it's,
2: You just like Margot Kidder. It, it,
0: <laughs> I just really adore Margot Kidder, I think, is what it is. But she's actually like shows a lot of warmth and empathy to a client who is having like an extreme breakdown in that moment, but also like challenges them. I'd also say like Adam Arkin as well is Will, is Will <laughs> the school psychologist mm-hmm. in H two O. Um, although he's overly familiar with those two young ladies, like School counselors, even if you're in a boarding school, never.
2: Yeah,
0: you. I. I think you're putting yourself in a very bad situation if you go alone into like another student's room. Yeah, that's just ripe with like a lawsuit. Do not do this. Yeah, but he is able to do, develop a nice, warm rapport with his. Students um, and talk about nipple rings and which is something that comes oh, up. Oh, that—that's
1: that. Actually, now I, I just remembered what you're talking about and that whole—I hated that whole scene. I was like, please kill me now. This is creepy and weird. <laughs> it's an awful scene. Um, oh yeah,
0: it is creepy. Anyway,
1: uh, well, the other—the other. This is kind of cheating, but Nancy and Dream Warriors. Mm-hmm. coming back mm-hmm. as a sort of mental health professional it's kind of a mm-hmm. cheating because she's she knows that freddie is real but she um her whole you know and she stands in stark contrast to the other people who work on the psych ward in that film you know uh but it's a chance of getting her and the other doctor end up getting fired i believe so it's mm-hmm. like you know but at least she's she her, she is really demonstrating empathy in that movie yeah <laughs> all right well cameron asks One film, and and now this is something I have not seen, so you let me know if either of you have seen this. One film that I have quite mixed feelings about is Identity. It's a great slasher film, but spoiler, I'm always unsure of the representation of multiple personality disorder in it. What are your thoughts as a group, and is it one you'd ever consider covering?
2: I love identity. I know that there are probably big problems with the way multiple personality disorder is represented in it, and I have not seen it in many, many years, but I do remember really, really digging that movie. Yeah. And that's one where, and Mike, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this too. That's one where I think we would, if we covered it, it would be to kind of debunk maybe or, um, you know, clear up misunderstandings, you know? but yeah. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I don't even think any the the term multiple personality disorder is a thing. Um, I, think so I think either. it's like dissociative identity disorder, yeah. but it's also even that is a controversial diagnosis, and it's one that's just like caught. It just caught on as such a fantastic cinematic and and literary idea, but I, I think it's not really the way that it's generally represented is completely wrong. And I and I think I think debunking mm-hmm. it as an idea um, or talking about what the reality of, of the the origins of it are would be an interesting episode for sure. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, listeners can't say I was just pretty much nodding my head to everything Laura <laughs> said. Yes, and I I remember really enjoying Identity when I saw it in the theaters, and I think that's the last time I've seen mm-hmm. it. Same. Um, so maybe it's because it's been so long, but I don't really see it as a take on. Multiple personality disorder, as much as like it was just that dude's struggles within his own head. He wasn't acting out all those personalities, like they were all, I just see them as the thoughts. Oh, it's almost like, it, you know, it's almost like the inside, the inside out of like horror movies. Like if Pixar yeah. is inside out <laughs> movie, that's what it would look like. Yeah. I also
1: just remembered <laughs> this movie and that I have seen it more than once. I just could like did not. But yeah, I like said the, the ending is so memorable that it all just yeah. flashed back yeah. to
2: me. <laughs> I'd want to yeah. yell the line at the end, but I'm not going to. <laughs> well, yeah. the one it's that has been
0: so long. I need to rewatch it. If
2: another movie that was the one with. um. What's
1: his nuts that uh, was part of the M night Shyamalan cinematic universe with that also sort of probably incorrectly covered it split. Yeah.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I still haven't seen that.
1: Wait, no, I I haven't seen seen it either. Yeah. I've seen enough in the trailer.
2: I saw the trailer and I was like, I get it. I'm good. And it's so Mm -hmm. it's frustrating to me. Um, when, because I did really enjoy Split also, uh, mo- more so because James McAvoy is fantastic in that movie. And that's like when I say I enjoy Identity too, it's, I have to really kind of, examine why I enjoy it. And I think with something like multiple personality disorder or the idea of this, it's just such a fascinating concept. And it's so easy to really lean into the sensational and away from Mm -hmm. the honest portrayal of this thing, which is why I think you have movies like Split. And then I think about a movie like They Look Like People, where we just covered where I feel like when you have a really authentic portrayal of something, it's not going to make the waves like a movie like Split would, you know, and so right. I think that's kind of an unfortunate reality of just our world, and I do kind of question what is it that I like about Split, and what is it that I like about identity, and is that, do I feel good about liking those things, you know, and I'm not going to give an answer here because I really need to think about it, and I'm not going to make a judgment no. on anybody who does like those movies, but just something to question, you know.
0: Yeah. No. Yeah. So, from Listener Raven, she has a couple questions. The first, who is your favorite female villain? Well, I think our resident expert on <laughs> you, female antagonists could, should probably take this could one. Did you
2: hear me just crack my knuckles getting ready? I did. Oh, man. I love, love, love this question so much, um, so much that I started a blog about it. Um, And so on a Halloweenies episode where they were answering questions, um, Justin Gerber reached out because they got a question about what would I want in a female killer? And so I read a long, I wrote a long answer about that. And that is what really was the birth of this blog. So check that out. One out, I might see if I can link it. But I love love female villains. I think they are fascinating. Um, I wrote one. I wrote an essay about um, Brenda Bates in *Urban Legend*. She's probably my favorite. But man, I got a long list, like Ursula, I like yeah. Maleficent, I like Alphaba um, slash The Wicked of Witch of the West, I love, um, I have not seen Audition because I have not been able to bring myself to watch it yet, but I'm fascinated by that movie, but... Um, Carrie White is somebody that I'm really fascinated by and Margaret White so those are all of these things are like on my big long list of things I'm going to tackle I'm also really interested in um, I can't remember her name right now but in Gone Girl I really think it's fascinating what motivates women to um, do villainous things and why do we think they are villainous like are they, or is it because, um, we are told that women should be one thing and we, when they are not that thing, we think that they're bad, you know? So I think that's really interesting. So stay tuned for lots and lots of thoughts on that very subject if you follow female antagonists. So yeah.
1: It's just, it's such a big question that I struggle Mm. to answer it because there just are so many. I mean, um, again, I just, I'm going to keep talking about Sunset Boulevard, but if I had to have like a, fi- a classic female villain in a horror adjacent movie, and she's not even really a villain so much as a, uh, a- I don't know, antagonist or, you know, anti is uh, Norma Desmond. And then there's always Sadako in the, in Ringu, uh, mm-hmm. the ring, you know, um, as far as little girls go, but God, I mean, I, I just don't even know. There's too many, there's too many. Yeah.
0: So Ellen Bonham Carter. It's Bellatrix the Strange mm,
2: mm-hmm.
0: in the Harry Potter movies. Love her. She can do anything she wants to make. this <laughs> terrible, terrible. <laughs> I I just like get it. Um, <laughs> I never want to watch the movie Inside Again. We recently covered it for my other podcast, but oh god, Beatrice Dahl in that movie is the woman, is just absolutely fucking incredible in that movie. And again, I like, she just exudes this kind of like danger.
1: Mm -hmm. Just being generally unhinged. Just being generally unhinged
0: in this movie. But there's just like, I don't know, there's something about her in that movie. It's just like, maybe I could turn her around. I don't know. Um, (laughs) I'm
1: sensing that Mike has a type of troubled woman. (laughs)
0: Yes. So it is, um, I would say those are the two that jump to mind is, is like probably my like two of my favorites overall.
2: And I want to say, I'm keeping a long list of all of these women and I will be writing about them. So if you yeah. have anybody to suggest, like email me, let me know.
0: <laughs> if Gore is your trigger point, I cannot recommend Inside.
2: <laughs> okay, or Audition,
0: audition for
1: that matter. Watch,
0: I never want to watch Inside again and I can't watch Audition again. I just, I can't work up the nerve to watch it again.
1: Oh.
2: Yeah. Okay. And I will say I have wanted to write about both of those because I know enough about the story. I've spoiled both of them for myself. I have not been able to get up the guts to watch it, but I am drawn to them in the same way I was Poughkeepsie Tapes. And that's the last time I'm going to mention that movie, I promise. No. But so I will be writing about them at some point, audition and inside. I just gotta, I gotta work myself up. So, yeah. You'll get there. <laughs> yes. that's I will. Yes. I'll watch them on a Saturday morning or something. Mm-hmm. All right, who is your favorite character in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Mike and L- I'm just going to say Willow for the record and then I'm going to get out of the way for you. Too. <laughs> S-
1: spike it's Spike. It's always going to be Spike. So it's a, it's, a, it's a Spike, it's a Spike.
0: It's Riley. Riley. What? No, it's um kidding. Oh, no, um, okay, I do God. know enough
2: about <laughs> that. um That's your Dr. This is a really answer.
0: This is a hard one because I think with with so much of what's going on with Joss Whedon, yeah, it's um it's actually kind of I was going to rewatch this show recently, like it's one of my quarantine rewatches, and I kind of like stepped away from yeah. doing it. And it's definitely a need to separate the art from the artist. I've been like a Xander defender for a long time, but I think now that you and you take a step back and realize that like Xander is Joss Whedon writing himself into the show, it becomes a lot harder to defend him.
1: It's unfortunate. And it's, you know, it's been so long since I've done a proper rewatch of the show that I can't even really comment on Xander's character. And it just, I think of all the, like, stories that have come out in the last few years this one i mean I, I i've heard for many years kind of burbling that joss whedon is kind of a, a diva and a dick to work with but yeah. just hearing the extent of it especially from charisma carpenter I mean it really really mm-hmm. really broke my heart as, as well yeah. as the hearts of many young people who grew up watching the, the shows yeah. and especially if, as as a show that meant so much to so many females mm-hmm. too you know and it's yeah. just oh it pisses yeah. me off I,
0: I think it shows that, like that show was considered an example of like good feminism for so long yep. because there just weren't any other examples of it and i think that now that there are so many better examples mm-hmm. that you know you can see that show in a more proper context that said i would probably say like um tara is one of my favorite characters i found mm-hmm. her like growth throughout the show fantastic and also like i love anyanka and anya i think emma caulfield is so brilliant Mm -hmm. she should be in more things um you know i know that like so many of us we were just absolutely nerded out when we saw her in one division and we thought we should play like a much bigger role which didn't it kind of was more a teaser or a red herring or diversion than anything but I think Anyanka is such a great character because she's just so blunt and she just doesn't have a filter and she just calls it as she sees it. Mm-hmm. And I think in yeah. the Caulfield play, but at the same time, like you see why she does what she does. And I think, like, when you watch like the backstory of Anya unfold, like that season seven episode where mm-hmm. she becomes a fear demon again that has to like kill. Of uh, all these frat boys, and you see like her history, like it is one of the best. I know a lot of people don't like the last two seasons of Buffy. I think they actually have some of the strongest episodes overall. Um also, when you get into um Angel, which is the companion show, I think um Wesley, like his character, and oh, the, yeah. growth, the growth of him, especially in Angel, became like one of the best one of the best creations. so yeah, that, and that
1: actor popped up in an episode of Sabrina, mm-hmm. and I was like, "Oh, it's Wesley!" Yeah. And like, I think he's really that's great,
0: Mister mm-hmm. Allison Hannigan,
1: right? And or th- that's right. I forgot yeah. about that. Oh my god, I completely yeah. like repressed that really. memory. It's wild yeah, but, stuff. Wild stuff.
0: Well, there are so many great. I mean, like there's Spike, who's a great character, especially season two, three, and four. Spike. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I Bears. like I like his I like his whole journey as well. I mean, right. don't get me yeah. started. I mean, it's like a whole mm. thing with me. So, yeah. <laughs> but
0: I think he's great in that last season of Angel. Mm-hmm. There's Oz. I mean, come mm. on, how do you fucking not love? I Oz? love him.
2: Huge crush. So, love Oz. Yeah.
0: So, um, I actually like Dawn a lot more than other people do.
1: I still don't like Dawn.
0: I, but you're not supposed to, I think, and I think that's kind of why I think the portrayal is so good. Yeah, I could do a whole Buffy podcast, I think.
1: Yes, this is where I I need to, I, yeah, we'll have to, at some point, I'll have to figure out how to enjoy the show and divorce it from Whedon and still appreciate its place in the history of my life. And I don't know what to do with all that right now. I'm
0: I'm just going to say, I think that, like, Jane Eppinson and Marty Noxon and Doug Doug Petrie... Uh, I think I'm just going to say, yeah, and I think David Fury, I think they were, you know, like, yeah, they were probably more responsible for a lot of the great moments overall. So um, we'll say it's that. That's (laughs) a good way to rationalize it.
1: All right. Well, moving on from Buffy. (laughs) Susan asks, what are some of your favorite songs used in horror media slash ways that horror media used music well? For example, I will never be able to hear a clip of Tiptoe Through the Tulips by Tiny Tim without thinking of Insidious and feeling creeped out.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay,
1: I'll stop. Um, I, I really apologize for doing that. <laughs> I just... Every I'm sorry, it. <laughs> He's not
2: behind you. Or maybe I will. I
1: also... I, I completely agree that, that 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 the use of that song was fantastic and I will always associate it with Insidious now. Um, this is another one I'm struggling to think of. I mean, the, the other thing that popped into my head was uh, Christine's use of all those like rock and roll songs. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. it, was just re- it was really iconic. And, uh, you know, I can't hear some of those songs without thinking thinking of Christine.
2: Yeah, I have I have three examples that I really love. Um one is the score of Sunshine is fantastic. I'm a little bit obsessed with that movie recently. Um, and that this is a, a score. It's not like a, a song. but um, And it was just used in the new Wonder Woman movie because it's really, really good. And I think it really effectively builds tension in a moment that might look small with a less... Um, effective score. So love that. The song in um, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, I can't remember what the song is right now, but it is really creepy and I think it's used very effectively. Um, Something about Let the Sun Shine In, I think, Hmm. but I can't remember how it goes. And then the other one is Fallen. That time is on my side. is so creepy Mm. and the way that it is used is really really cool. If you haven't seen that movie, I don't want to spoil it, but it's it's cool. Fallen. But with Denzel Washington and John Goodman.
1: That also just made me think of um, use the use of put five on it in Us. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. which is just in the way that it's kind of remixed into like the score, you know, and it's a oh, mm-hmm. fabulous. Mm-hmm.
0: So, I mean, my I've said my favorite movie of all time is American Werewolf in London. So, the use of Credence, Bad Moon Rising during mm-hmm. the transformation scene—that is good. It's just this wonderful. I mean, it's a great song on its own. This wonderful pop song, and it's this horrific, just, you can hear the bones snapping and skin ripping, and David's pain is so visceral in that moment, and you have this really peppy music behind it. Mm -hmm. That would be one. The other, I've talked about The Battery before. I would never not talk about The Battery and how much I love this movie. It's a zombie movie for people that don't love zombie movies. Hmm. I think... I will any- say,
1: I don't love zombie movies, and that's one of the yeah. few that I that I genuinely no. love. So. Oh,
0: any independent filmmaker with low budgets should watch this movie. There is a moment in there where the main character, played by Jeremy Garner, he just has a bottle of, like, Jack Daniels. He has his headphones in. And there's a song, it is by... Um, rock plaza central called anthem for the already defeated it's this kind of like happy folky folk rock song and it's just him singing and dancing like no one is watching and it's so fucking great and then it's like punctuated by this moment of terror it's done so well same director in his latest movie after midnight um, His use of Lisa Loeb's stay in a karaoke setting <laughs> yeah. is fucking brilliant. Absolutely fucking brilliant. So, yeah, I would say search out uh, Anthem for the already defeated and the battery. Uh, you can find a, that clip of the movie online, but you should just watch that movie, the battery.
2: Also want to give a shout out to the Anna and the Apocalypse soundtrack. Also, mm. very good.
1: Yeah. And I was just going to say, I know there's so many that I'm blanking on, and somebody's going to oh, yeah. scream them at me later, mm-hmm. and I'm going to kick myself. It's the nature
2: of the beast of this kind of episode. I
0: I always struggle when someone asks, like, what's your favorite? Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. What's my favorite today, you know?
0: Yeah, my daughter does, too, so I've had to rephrase how I ask her, like, what are some things you like, as opposed mm-hmm. to what's your favorite? Because, think like, the absolute part of it is what gets me, ah, I get panicky.
2: Yeah. All
0: right, moving on. Lindsay asks, and we I think we only have a couple questions left. We've so Yeah, landed. we're
1: almost at the end then we have some comments the yep. and then so. yeah.
0: Lindsay asks, if you could make a horror movie about any mental health issue, which issue would you pick? And if you have a brief synopsis of your movie, that would be awesome. So I'm not
1: totally sure what the second half of this question means, but I will say I have done this already. (laughs) So (laughs) I don't know if I've done it especially well, but uh, I, I made a short film called Short Leash that was genuinely just about anxiety. And when I wrote it, I wanted to have the whole experience just be like putting yourself in the headspace of someone who is having like kind of a spiral, an anxiety spiral, panic attack meltdown. Like I just wanted to put... The viewer and that ex- within that experience, and not being able to trust your own perception of reality as a result of it. So you know it's available on Vimeo if you want to watch it. Just
2: don't tell me if you don't like it. My <laughs> ego cannot handle it. Um, I would say I would probably do one about PTSD. This is a tough one for me because I feel like I. Uh- I tend to like to write about things that already exist rather than think of new things to create, but I would probably make it about PTSD and I would probably add an element of addiction or alcoholism in there just because that's something that I've experienced and that's a movie that I would want to watch. So no idea what the plot would be. I don't know. Some girl named Jess. (laughs) (laughs) It's just really a girl named
1: Jess.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think if I were, I, I wrote and directed a short that I just never got to complete, and it was about like it was about parenthood. It was about my own inadequacies as a dad at that point, and my lack of like just like lack of sleep. And I, I think I would probably do something towards like aging and kind of growing out of things. Mm. I don't really know what it would look like to be quite honest. Like my focus is just not on like narrative fiction. So I don't really know what, I don't really have an answer.
2: Yeah.
1: Sorry. Well, I do. And you can watch it online.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe next time we do a question, Q and a we'll revisit as we've maybe workshopped a little bit in our brains.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Last question. Am I reading it? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So this will be our last question. Then we do have some more comments that are more just general commentary from listeners. So Ginny asks, the horror movies selected for this month are around overt narcissists, but what would slash could you have chosen to discuss about covert narcissists? Now I'm going to say I have no answer for this. Uh, I I feel like horror
2: movies don't tend to be subtle. Mm-hmm. Jen, did you have something that you wanted to respond with? Um, yeah, I had a hard time thinking about this too, although I feel like I say, oh, there's narcissism in this movie in just about every movie we talk about. Um, I know. also want to give a shout out to the overt and covert narcissist. I really liked that um, that wordplay. I would say The Shining is the first one that came to mind. And more so, it's not necessarily that he is a covert narcissist. I think there's just so much to pick apart with the character of Jack Torrance that narcissism is probably not the first thing most people think of but it is one of the big things that I notice and this is not in horror but it came, but I was just thinking about The Righteous Gemstones you know? Mm, I love that show. I do too and it's um, it's really funny. Um, So maybe, I guess there's another movie called um Arizona that has, oh gosh, now I'm blanking on The Righteous Gemstones dude's name Danny um, McBride? Danny McBride, yeah yeah, it's a movie starring him where I think with The Righteous Gemstones I especially like it because I think it's narcissistic ism in um, a religious context. And I think it really kind of peels back the layers of bullshit that a lot of mm-hmm. um, very pious people have to their personality. So not necessarily mm-hmm. horror, but Arizona is horror. And I think there's maybe a little bit of that in there. Also, it's a really good movie. So check it out.
1: Yeah. And I just thought of uh, it just sort of flashed back to some of our conversations around paranormal activity. And I think that the boyfriend in that could it's more in the yeah. context of Again, toxic and abusive relationships, mm-hmm. but I think his behavior is definitely, could be defined as covert narcissism. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, possibly the preacher in the last exorcism, mm. but I don't, I don't know. I love that character so much. I love that movie so much. I think that's just someone trying to get by and help his family out. I don't know.
2: Yeah. But
0: possibly that. Yeah. that's mm-hmm. That was a hard one.
2: Yeah. I will make it my solemn vow to pledge uh, to mention narcissism when I see a covert narcissist pop up because mm. it's the kind of thing where I had a really hard time putting my finger on one person, but I feel like I see it all the time. You mm. know, mm-hmm. 100%. So I'll make sure to mention it. All right, And so those are all the questions we're going to answer in this episode. And I just wanted to say, some of you sent in multiple questions. We have saved every question. If we did not get to yours this time, because we're like hitting that two hours right two now. Two hour
0: mark, yeah. Yeah.
2: And we do have some comments that we want to go through too. Um, we've saved them all. We will answer them down the road. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for uh, sending them all in. Um Yeah. Um, So now let's get to some of these comments. The rest of these are not questions, just comments and feedback from our listeners that we'd like to share. And we are super grateful for all of them and for taking the time to write these. So the first one is from Anna Maria. And Anna Maria took issue with the way we described cluster B personality disorders, including borderline personality disorder or BPD um, so Anna Maria, Anna Maria writes, I work with ending stigma for mental illness. I've met lots of young women with um, borderline personality disorder, often repeatedly sexually and physically abused during their childhood, often harming themselves, not others, and often institutionalized. There's a scientific discussion about complex PTSD and how that might be a diagnosis that could often be used instead of by borderline personality disorder because it is often connected to severe trauma. of people diagnosed with borderline personality disorder end up dying from suicide. Many more attempt it. We feel empathy. We feel love. Most of us don't exploit loved ones. We are suffering and desperate human beings who make mistakes because we are mentally ill. It is no different from a depressed person not being able to clean the house. It is not because the depressed person does not care about the people who have to do the cleaning. It is just what the depressed person cares about does not factor into it. It is not a decision. It is an inability. I've heard about us being manipulative constantly since I was first diagnosed 20 years ago. I have only ever been manipulated by people who presented as sane, and I've only been treated without empathy by people who've never been diagnosed with BPD. I don't know if you want to learn about BPD, but if you do, I think Marsha Linehan is a great place to start. She is a researcher and expert in borderline personality disorder, and we're going to link a couple of these articles. Her research and therapy methods, dialectical behavior therapy are used all over the world. Her work is driven by empathy and has saved my life and countless others. She has also suffered from borderline personality disorder, and we're going to link that article. So thank you so much for reaching out with that feedback, Anna Maria.
1: Yeah, and uh, I've also heard a lot of really good things about dialectical behavioral therapy. So yeah, definitely check out that article in the New York Times. All right, and um, moving to the next comment from Cameron. We read something from Cameron a few weeks ago in an episode about schizophrenia. So Cameron says, some weeks ago I submitted a testimonial regarding my experience with a relative's schizophrenia, but something I said rubbed me the wrong way when I heard it read aloud. I made mention of how exhausting the illness can be as a witness without emphasizing how much more exhausting it is as a victim. I'm not keen on how I framed the matter so heavily toward my perspective when it's Charlie who shoulders the worst of it. The illness is a burden to him. He is not a burden to me. Just had to clear that up for my peace of mind. Keep up the good work, you guys. <laughs> I suppose I didn't need to read no, the I, last I, sentence, aw. but yeah.
0: Um I think it's okay, Cameron to, to, voice that like it can be exhausting to care for someone that suffers from mental illness like there's, it can absolutely and that's why there are support groups for caregivers Mm -hmm. Um, and if there's one that's available to you I would definitely encourage you to seek that out and I think that like I don't think what you're doing is blaming your I don't think you're blaming your relative for having the illness. I think that you're just acknowledging that as a person like there's only so much you can shoulder sometimes.
1: Yeah, and I and I don't think the original commentary came off no. as insensitive or anything. It. I think you did a very good job articulating yeah. just what the situation is. So, yeah. thank you again for reaching out and for being such a, a good listener yeah. for you know, so so supportive of the podcast. So, we yeah. love you. Yes. And yeah. I hope and everyone else had better. Damn well love you too. So, <laughs> yeah. yes.
0: All right. From Mike
1: A different Mike, not our Mike.
0: Not me. I've been a lifelong horror fan ever since my mother introduced me to A Nightmare on Elm Street at the incredibly tender age of four years old. One of my fondest memories growing up was watching Firestarter on a Saturday afternoon with her while we made homemade applesauce. Sadly, she passed away almost 20 years ago when I was 19. But I owe my love of all things horror to our shared love of the genre. I mention this because my mother was an alcoholic, narcissistic, manic-depressive, and while I treasure memories of her on her good days, those days were few and far between. Coming home from school each day made me incredibly anxious, because I never knew what I'd come home to see, and I'll spare the details, but I saw things no child should ever have to see. I appreciate the light you shine on the relationship between mental illness and horror in some of my favorite films, Having been a fan of all three of your work on previous podcasts, it's a true pleasure to hear the three of you each week. You make my Thursday mornings at work fly by mm.
1: So,
0: thank thank you so you for sweet, that, thank you,
1: Mike. Yeah, yeah, and thank you for sharing that story. I know that's something a lot of us can relate to yeah. to one degree or another, so yeah. Yeah. it's good yeah. to reflect
0: I mean, I think all of us, aside from having our own anxieties and issues that we face, I think all of us have been touched by others in our lives that are very important to us that suffer from mental illness. And, um, I know that like, you know, these are people that are very important to us that we love dearly and like everybody, like there is good and bad and there are flaws in all of us. Um, it doesn't mean that we love them any less. It doesn't mean that they're not deserving of our love and our care of empathy, but you know, it can also, doesn't also mean that we haven't been hurt by people that
1: we've Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah. And it doesn't mean that I may have not hurt someone with my yeah. own with my own mental health struggles, you mm-hmm. know, and it's right. it just is what it is, and that's but that's why yeah. we're here and why we're discussing this yeah. is to unpack and examine yeah. all of that I mean, yeah. i
0: I know that I with my own struggles with depression, that I have like hurt the people that are closest to me, and that I can sometimes be when it really hits. like I can be pretty exhausting to be around. So it's something that I struggle with.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Same. Um, and I've talked a lot about this because that is something that I get really a lot of anxiety around. I also, the other thing that I really, really just kind of struck a nerve with me in this is, um, when I was married, my first husband was an alcoholic and I just remember driving home every day, not knowing what I was going to get home to, you know, and it was, Mm -hmm. so I, I feel your pain there and I'm sorry you had to go through that. Mary Beth McAndrews just wrote a really great essay for We Are Horror. And I think it's part of their Patreon, but you should definitely um, check it out. About her relationship with her father who introduced her to horror and how it's kind of similar to my own relationship with my dad because he introduced me to horror. And it's like we can still treasure those memories and also admit that there was pain involved in that relationship, Mm. too. And I think both of those things can exist at the same time. So, you know, so thank you so much for sharing that, Mike. Um, And Nicole, this is the last comment we're going to read. My name is Nicole. I follow you on Facebook and saw your post about sending in questions for your 5th April episode. I wanted to reach out and tell you all how much I love your podcast. Oh, thank you. I've always been a horror lover and it was rare to find others who enjoyed that genre. I love how your podcast combines psychology and horror in a healthy way. Scream has always been a comfort horror for me. So needless to say, I'm all about your Scream episodes. Those are some (laughs) of my favorites, I think. Um, Listening to your podcast has even helped me process some personal trauma. Thank you for creating this podcast and being open about mental health. Approaching it from a movie culture standpoint helps make it relatable and personally makes me feel less alone. So thank you again for sharing with us listeners. Thank you so well, much. Thank that, you. That's exactly why we wanted to do this podcast. So no. that really makes me feel good that it's resonating with people in that way.
1: Exactly. And it's just so sweet. And I'm really just so t- touched by a lot of these comments and, Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's, it's, I think it is, it's all about feeling less alone and feeling more connected to people, especially at this time, is like so important.
2: So, absolutely. yeah. 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 And I feel like I say it at the end. I'm just going to say it now. Like, thank you for um, sharing this time with us. Like, we couldn't have this podcast if no one was listening. And we really appreciate not just these questions that you sent in, but every time you've engaged with us and reached mm-hmm. out and told us something we've said resonated or given us feedback or give it, shared your personal experiences. It really, really means a lot to us. We we do want to hear from you and we want to know what you think. So, um, yeah. Uh Yeah. So that was our comments and questions episode. So what are we watching next? We are starting a new theme um, because it's going to be May. It's going to be May. Um, <laughs> May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And our theme for the month is residential treatment. And I am excited to tackle this one because I think it's a topic that carries a lot of stigma and misunderstanding. So I'm really looking forward to digging into it. I'm going to put a prompt up, but if you have personal experience with residential treatment, we would love to hear about it. You can email us at psychoapod at gmail.com. Please only share if you feel comfortable doing so. Absolutely no pressure at all. We're going to start trying to incorporate listener experiences into our episodes. And hearing from you gives us more context for the topic and helps us kind of inform what we talk about in the episodes. We will never share anything that you don't give us permission to share. Um. So look out for a prompt on social media with information about how you can do that. And our first movie on the topic of residential trauma is Shutter Island, which I have not seen in a few years. Mm. And I'm really excited to revisit. And I think this is going to be a good jumping off point to talk about this. Earlier in the episode, we mentioned covering movies where we kind of debunk or um, talk about stigma. And I think this is going to be an example of that um, Totally. kind of episode. Yeah. Yeah, we are a member of the Consequence Podcast Network. You can find us along with some other fantastic pods by going to Consequence po- by going to consequence.net. Um, the site just went through a big rebrand, so make sure to check it out. It looks really cool and there are some exciting new features. Uh Mike, where can we find you online?
0: So you can find me on Twitter at Mike underscore Snoonian. You can also find my other podcast, The Pod and The Pendulum, wherever you get your shows. Uh, Lindsay, Travis, and I cover horror movie franchises every other week. We have a new episode that drops, and we are in the middle of covering The Evil Dead. And then I think we're going to move to The Conjuring Universe. Uh, we've just planned out all of the movies we're going to cover, I think, now through like February of next year. So we get some really exciting stuff lined up. So, yeah. Pod and the Pendulum It's my other show. I think if you like this show, um, you will also really like the Pod and the Pendulum.
2: Laura, what about you? Well, I'm occasionally
1: on Halloweenies and the Losers Club. Uh, just talking shit, <laughs> taking names. Uh, you can find me on Twitter as well, at Underalls, that's U-N-D-E-R-A-L-L-S. And I have nothing to thematically link it to because this was such a, a, a broad episode so yeah. i'm just gonna say just like your goddamn stinking little fucking underpants at underalls U N D E R L L S on twitter that's where you can find me god damn it <laughs> my voice is just gonna keep going steadily <laughs> up until um until you only the dogs him. can hear me <laughs> yeah
2: <laughs> and you can find me at jim farah too on all of the socials. Um you can find me on the Losers Club as well and you can also find me writing the Strong Female Antagonist blog which I believe the the tw- the Twitter handle is f@ fuck sfantagonist.com. I got to get better at plugging that. But check it out. I'm about to start working on the next month the next month's submission fuck all fucking words. Um I'm about to start working <laughs> on the next post. So uh check that out. I'm I'm excited about it. Uh, Yeah. So that's where you can find me. And that is our listener feedback episode. Woo. Thank you so much for sending your thoughts and questions. Um, Like I said, I was really nervous that we weren't going to get any, and it really means a lot that you would want to engage with us. Thank you so much for listening and spending time with us. Please make sure to take care of yourselves and take care of each other. And with that, let's sign off. We came here to chew bubble gum and take care of ourselves. And we're all 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 out of of bubblegum. Yum, yum, yum.